Welcome to this week's episode of the HS Health Tech Podcast. My name's James, one of the founders of HS, and with me this week, I have Dr. Judd Brewer, who is a psychiatrist, addiction expert, and entrepreneur. So I first came across Judd when I saw his TED Talk, which I believe is the fourth most viewed TED Talk of all time with just under 13 million views and on that TED talk he explores the question can we break bad habits by being more curious about them so obviously he's uh, an expert in the field and has done lots of research and he's even built companies around it so he is more than qualified to answer that question so definitely check out that TED talk. So Judd is the founder of a company called Mind Sciences, which is developing digital therapeutics in addiction. And alongside that, he's director of research and innovation at the Mindful Center and associate professor in psychiatry at the School of Medicine at Brown University. Uh, he's also a research affiliate at MIT. So he's done loads of cool stuff in his career. He's held teaching positions at Yale and the University of Massachusetts Center for Mindfulness. And as an addiction psychiatrist and definitely internationally known expert in mindfulness training for treating addictions, he's developed and tested quite a few kind of novel mindfulness programs for habit change, including in-person, but also app-based treatments for smoking, emotional eating, anxiety, etc. So definitely pioneering in the digital therapeutic space. So guys, I hope you really enjoy the podcast. And as always, you can get in touch with us on Twitter at HSVenture. Ping us on Instagram at hs.ventures. You can email us at info at hs.live. And do feel free to get in touch. Um, you can suggest a guest. You can give us some feedback. You can tell us if there's certain things you want to hear about, certain things you prefer hearing about. So do get in touch. Let us know what you think. And as well as the HS stuff, you can also ping me. My name's James Somaru, so S-O-M-A-U-R-O-O. You can find me on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram at J underscore Soms. So enjoy the podcast and look forward to hearing from you guys. Great. So Judd, welcome to the HS Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing today, sir? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Whereabouts are you speaking to us from, Judd? I'm coming from the great Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Oh, lovely. Lovely. So Judd, obviously we've had a quick phone call before, so I know a little bit about your awesome story, but for the benefit of our listeners, why don't you tell us all about it? (laughs) I think I got my entrepreneurial bug when I was probably about 10 or 11 and I wanted to have a paper out so I could have spending money when I was a kid. And I wanted to do things like buy a BMX bike and things like that. So I had to somehow wheedle my way into uh, and under the child labor laws uh, <laughs> because I was too young officially to be a paper boy. Uh, but somehow I got in and um, got rolling from there, literally, uh, as I would <laughs> deliver my papers on my bicycle, starting with an afternoon paper route and then as a, you know, graduating to the, the morning paper route where I'd have to get up pretty early in the morning and, and deliver papers. But I, so is that like radio then? So the, the morning slots actually for the, for the primetime readers? It is. Delivery. It is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the news is over, I guess, midday. I'm not sure how that works. <laughs> 
So, so I did that for a while, um, you know, and then kept working uh, through, you know, in high school. I had a couple of jobs uh, to, to make some money for college and ended up uh, getting a, <laughs> a, a scholarship to college from my, uh, from my paper, uh, you know, from the Indianapolis Star, um, because I guess they were, they were excited that I was going to Princeton or something. That's amazing. Uh, That's the paper that you delivered. They gave you yeah. the scholarship to go to college. Yeah, they did. I, I applied a couple of weeks late because <laughs> I was like, oh, there's a scholarship. Boom, <laughs> let's go for it. And they said, well, just go ahead and put it in. And I don't know if they didn't have many applicants that year or, or whatnot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I hadn't delivered papers in, you know, in a long time. <laughs> so so th- things were there. Um, you know, my freshman year of college, uh, we had these old dormitories that all had had uh, fireplaces and one of my good friends and I uh, decided to start up what we called the student firewood agency where we, where the university, they would cut down trees and then deposit them off of campus. And we said, you know, look at all these, these trees that are cut down already, you know, to size, all we need to do is split them and deliver them and ask the university for permission. And, you know, we, we chartered the student firewood agency and uh, had a great time, you know, splitting wood on, on the weekends uh, and then delivering it to students, teaching them how to how to make fires in their dorms. Uh, <laughs> I guess it was successful enough that uh, the borough came around and started inspecting the fireplaces <laughs> and the university realized, you know, they it's probably not a great idea to have uh, drunk college students on the weekend um, starting fires in these <laughs> very, in these very wooden dorms. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> that only lasted a year, but it was good times. So we, we, we learned a lot and learned a bit about you know, advertising. Uh, I still remember our the flyer we made up was, um, you know, can you feel the heat? And we had a picture of of two uh, of the back of a couch and and two uh, two pairs of feet sticking off the edge. Uh, as our as our edgy way to um, to get people interested in having the romance of a fire. Uh, nice, in, nice, in yeah. So that was you know that was college. I was very interested. You know, I, I went to college. I was a chemistry major uh, and, and a music performance uh, person. So you know, played the violin. And really thought I was going to be a chemist because I just loved the molecules of life. I remember freshman year learning in my chemistry class these these uh, molecules called putrescine and cadaverine, <laughs> which wow. which are as uh, as named <laughs> these molecules <laughs> that kind of come from from cadavers as they uh, decompose. And I was just amazed how you know just this molecule could make something you know could be a smell and then. It just got me going in terms of thinking about how molecules are the reason that we think and and can have actually move our muscles and all this stuff. So just got really interested in that. Uh, yet it was you know, about my junior year, I think I stopped suddenly and I was like, wait a minute, what am I doing? Um, do I want to just be studying these tiny molecules the rest of my life? Because I had this this itch, this bug where I just I also wanted to be relevant and be helpful for people in the world. And so my girlfriend at the time said, you know, why don't you do this MD PhD program where you can do, you can still do research because that was what I loved to do. And I could also do research that was medically related where it would help people and, and I would get to learn more about the human body, uh, you know, being a physician. So I quickly scrambled uh, to 
complete my pre-medical coursework and don't tell my medical school uh, admissions crew, but uh, they, they missed the fact that I didn't take all of the requisite um, math courses. So somehow I squeaked by um, <laughs> and, and got into a, you know, MD PhD program uh, at Washington University in St. Louis. Nice thing about those programs was that they're fully funded by the government. So I could, I could be, you know, I could learn research, I could get my, um, my medical degree, but all of that debt free, which was, which wow. later on turned out to be instrumental, because uh, it didn't, you know, didn't burden me with heavy debt. And a lot of my medical students come out with a lot of debt. And they, you know, they've got to jump right into clinical practice where they can, you know, they make a little bit more money than researchers and, um, and pay off their student loans. So I, I didn't have that. I had eight uh, somewhat carefree years of, uh, of really diving into learning medicine and science. Um, the irony was when I first started medical school, uh, said girlfriend and I were engaged to be married and things weren't going well. <laughs> we broke up right before we started medical school. And I was having trouble sleeping, you know, because I was like, oh, we're best friends. And now she won't talk to me anymore. And, you know, this and that. So I started meditating my first day of medical school. You know, I figured it's a new start. Uh, it's something, you know, new. Why not try this out? And I, I was successful at uh, falling asleep for six months trying to meditate as I first tried to uh, figure out my own mind. But after a little while, I got the hang of it a little bit and would, you know, meditate during boring medical school lectures and, and this and that. And also realized that I had no idea how my own mind worked. <laughs> no mm. idea. And so uh, it seemed like it's probably a good idea to understand this thing that kind of drives everything in my world. And had the opportunity, you know, as I was doing my PhD to really dive in a bit more, you know, I started going on uh, long meditation retreats, you know, go for a week at a time without, um, you know, in silence and all of this. Uh, and one thing I learned there was that I was terrible at meditating. You know, I remember going on my first week long retreat and about three days in, I was bawling on the shoulder of my retreat manager, just crying my eyes out. And I realized, you know, the instructions really simple, you know, pay attention to your breath when your mind wanders, bring it back. And I'd figured, you know, I worked hard to get into medical school and all of this. So I, I, I can do this, you know, how hard is it to pay attention to your breath? And it turns out it was the hardest thing in the world. <laughs> I was, you know, I realized that I was addicted to thinking you know, mm -hmm. and distraction and all this stuff. And I couldn't just willpower my way through this. It turns out, and we can come back to this later, but it turns out that willpower is quite a bit of a myth, more myth than muscle. Uh, and we, I know this now, literally in, in 2019, uh, but back then, you know, willpower was all the rage and, and, very much still is. So, you know, willpower didn't work so well. Uh, but I learned more about how my mind worked and how I couldn't just force my way, you know, to get things done. And fast forward to the end of my MD PhD program. So eight years in to meditating, I had, you know, my um, PhD was in immunology, I was studying how to 
you know, why we get sick when we get stressed and was working in the molecular biology field, you know, making conditional knockout mouse models of stress and all this and studying them, you know, it did pretty well there. We published well, uh, yet I really had this itch, you know, we'd even, um, my university had patented some of the work that we'd done, but somebody asked me this question, well, how do you know, you know, what you discovered applies to humans? And I, you know, was getting ready with my rebuttal and I was like, but, 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 uh, I, you know, that's a good question. I don't really know. And so I started really, I got this bug to move, say, from molecules in college to mice in, in medical school uh, to looking at humans and seeing, you know, the, the buck stops there. We have to actually do the research in humans if we're going to see if things work in humans. So that was the time when I was, you know, finishing my PhD. And then with these MD-PhD programs, you can do two years of medical school, you do it your PhD for a long enough period of time that you've forgotten everything that you learned in medical <laughs> school. And then you go back and finished up your clinic rotation. So, you know, I was going back into my clinical rotations, figured well, I'll do psychiatry first cause I'm never going to be a psychiatrist. And so I remember how to interview medical student, you know, medic or interview patients and all of this. And, um, my first rotation was pretty good. I was like, this is great. I can't wait to do my other ones. And it turned out, you know, fast forward over 20 years, I'm an addiction psychiatrist. <laughs> uh, so that really was the place that, that stuck me, you know, stuck with me most. And I think it was because what I was learning from the Buddhist psychology was the same language that my patients were talking. And also, you know, I really fell in love with working with the underdogs. You know, I, I was probably a bit of a, an outsider as a, you know, as a kid, uh, you know, grew up without, without a lot of money. And, you know, we moved around a little bit um, as my mom trying to raise four kids by herself was trying to support us. Uh, she was an amazing woman uh, who even went back to law school, you know, at night um, to become a lawyer. Um, wow. Yeah. So I, you know, it was like, these folks with addictions, you know, the society shuns them, they beat themselves up, they feel guilty, and they're speaking the same language as the Buddhists, you know, let, let's see what's going on here. So I decided, you know, after about 10 years of practicing meditation myself to shift my entire career from molecular biology to retooling to learn humans, trials, uh, neuroscience, and, and neuroimaging, and all of this stuff. And I was fortunate enough to be, uh, as I did my residency training, uh, Yale University has this program called this Neuroscience Research Training Program, where you can actually do a bit of research during residency. So it was, it was a perfect fit for me, where I could still get my psychiatric training, but also could retool and do research. So I actually started my first clinical trial when I was a third year resident uh, at Yale. And they, they call this uh, the brown bag study because, you know, I did this, uh, this randomized controlled trial of cognitive behavioral therapy compared to mindfulness training for uh, alcohol and cocaine use disorder. And I was the, a one man show, you know, I had to design the trial, I, I collected the data and I brought the statisticians, all of my data in a grocery bag, in a brown, <laughs> brown grocery bag. So, you know, the, the, I don't know what they thought of me, but that was, you know, that was my first foray into clinical trials. And that study was really interesting because we found that mindfulness training was not only as good as gold standard treatment for 
for preventing relapse to alcohol and cocaine use. But we also found that when we did these personalized stress provocations, that people were less stressed out when they got mindfulness training compared to uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. And that was critical because stress is one of the biggest relapse predictors. You know, when we get stressed, we go back to our old ways of doing things. And I know now why that is. We can circle back to that as well. So, you know, I was like, wow, there's something to this. And did, you know, then said, okay, let's do one of the hardest addictions, which is smoking, which seems crazy. You know, smoking, really? Well, smoking, they don't make movies about smoking. So it's not quite as glamorized as, you know, it's like train spotting or, um, you know, leaving Las Vegas or all these movies about heroin addiction or alcohol. Um, and to be clear, none of these are glamorous, um, but they, you know, they certainly make great movies because the, these hero stories can come from this or tragedies as well. Uh, so smoking, you know, I said, okay, let's go for it. Um, one of the hardest addictions to quit. Let's do it. Did a random, you know, designed a treatment um, and my first randomized controlled trial, again, co compared to cognitive therapy, uh, in this case, it was the American Lung Association's Freedom from Smoking. And ready for this, five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment. And I was thinking, wow, wow. <laughs> this is amazing. You know, carbon monoxide verified, like we did all, we did it the right way. Uh, and, you know, published in a good journal. And I said, well, wait a minute. I want to know what's going on here because, you know, we've got this behavioral effect mechanistically what is happening because I'm just fascinated by mechanism, you know, what's going on, what's going on behaviorally, what's going on in the brain. So we, we looked at the mechanism and it turns out that mindfulness training actually decouples this link, this very, very strong link between craving and smoking. And so at that point, I went back and started looking at the mechanisms and said, okay, well, what is there a good mechanistic model for this that we can study? You know, with cancer research, I think that's a good example. You know, in the 50s, they had these chemotherapeutics that were basically like throwing a hand grenade in your body. And, you know, you try to blow the cancer up before you blow yourself up. And so there are high morbidity and mortality rates. Uh, yet, as people learn mechanistic pathways, they could you know, target specific tyrosine kinases or whatnot and get these, you know, very, in, in some cases, good, uh, high, high, high remission rates with very few side effects because they could specifically target pathways. And I said, well, can we do this with behaviors as well? Can we find a pathway and target that? And it turns out, uh, and this is a crazy story. So, uh, B.F. Skinner, probably you're familiar with him. Many people know him, this famous guy that had, you know, came up with like this uh, concept of operant conditioning. Uh, Eric Kendall even um, got the Nobel Prize in 2000 showing that it's, you know, that this process is evolutionarily concerned all the way back to the sleaze slug. Turns out that the Buddhist psychologists had described this very process 2,500 years ago before paper was even invented. <laughs> So, you know, I, I worked with a, a Buddhist scholar and I was like, wait a minute, this cannot be a coincidence. And we actually published an academic paper showing that, you know, the Buddhist psychology, they call it dependent origination, modern day psychology, positive and negative reinforcement or operant conditioning, same thing. And I was like, dude, if, if this if this is this, you know, if we're reinventing or rediscovering these things that have been around for 2,500 years, if we just took a Darwinian perspective, you know, 
um, the, the best psychotherapy or best, you know, behavioral treatment that we have has only been around, you know, tops a hundred years. So this is like orders of magnitude, you know, uh, stronger in terms of Darwinian evolutionary selection pressure. So this, you know, this can, <laughs> we got to look into this more. <laughs> so basically the process is, is actually relatively simple and straightforward. Uh, and it, you know, there are three core components. There's a, a trigger, a behavior, and from a brain perspective, a reward. And that can actually drive uh, what's called, you know, reinforcement learning, reinforce, uh, reward-based learning, because the reward is what drives the, the behavior or operant conditioning, a bunch of names for it. And this was set up, you know, think of caveman brain. This was set up as a survival mechanism. You see food, you eat the food, and now we know that there's this dopamine signal that gets spritzed in your brain that says, you know, remember what you ate and where you found it. So it was set up as this survival mechanism to help us remember where food is. And this is really important. It's context-dependent memory formation. So we'd learn things in a certain context. Same, same is true for avoiding danger. You know, you see the saber-toothed tiger, you run away. It's all good. So turns out in modern day, this process very alive and well, yet we all have refrigerators. You know, there are, you know, uh, restaurants that are open 24 hours a day. So food is plentiful, yet our brain says, hey, you know, I'm here to help. I'm here to help you survive. So we start doing things like, you know, eating when we're stressed or anxious, not when we're hungry. We start doing things like taking pain pills for psychological or physical pain. Um, we even learn to you know, distract ourselves on social media when we're bored. Same process at play, just in modern day, it's literally killing us. You know, we have an obesity epidemic in the United States. We have an opioid epidemic. Uh, cigarettes, smoking is still really hard to, you know, break that habit. Um, and, you know, vaping is on the rise. So well-known process, turns out the Buddhists had figured it out 2,500 years ago. And lo and behold, turns out that this mindfulness training, you know, the smoking study, we found that mindfulness was targeting that key link in, operant, in the operant conditioning pathway. So craving leads to the behavior. And if we can affect that drive, um, we can actually change behavior. And it's not just at that pathway. So we, you know, as we did these, this study, um, I was also doing a bunch of neuroimaging work and uh, studying experienced meditators to figure out why their brains, um, you know, or, you know, what was going on in their brains, were their brains different than novice meditators. So uh, long story short, we found that there's this, network of brain regions called the default mode network uh, that's involved in self-referential processing. Basically, when we get caught up in craving, when we get caught up in perseveration, rumination, or basically anytime we're lost in the past, anytime we're projecting into the future, uh, we're activating this network. And uh, my, my lab found that it was, you know, in, you know, there's lots of studies showing that it's increased in activity when people are caught up. But my lab found that experienced meditators have a really quiet default mode. They even have different uh, connectivity in their brain functionally where they're, you know, the default mode is talking to different networks that, that look different than novice meditators. So this network 
you know, it was, it was really interesting. And we had done some, um, some neuro, neurofeedback studies where we could actually give people feedback from their own brains in real time. And this, um, this philanthropist came in and wanted to, you know, he's really interested in this work. Uh, he was a jazz musician himself and, you know, wanted to figure out what was, you know, what this neurofeedback thing was all about. And so, you know, brought him up to Yale and uh, I was an assistant professor at this time. And, you know, he got in, we had him just do an imaginary riff, uh, jazz riff, where he was just, you know, uh, improvising. Um, and it turns out, you know, that he could uh, use that feedback and, you know, and learn from it. And we did a bunch of um, a bunch of studies with novices and, you know, some of them were actually tripping into learning from their own feedback as well. So, uh, Yale, you know, went, went through the patent process for this thing. And this guy, um, he takes me out to lunch after this, this session. And he said, you know, this is amazing. Uh, you have to, you've got to get this out into the world. You can't just let this, you know, die in the, in the hallowed halls or the, the ivory towers of academia. And so on the back of a napkin, he sketches out, you know, he's like, oh, you got you to gotta found a company. And I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, I like doing research. This is kind of fun. And we're learning cool stuff. Didn't you have a good time in the scanner? <laughs> you know, and he said, no, no you got to do this. And so this, uh, you know, my entrepreneurial bug kind of, um, or that itch re was was re reawoken. I don't know what the word is. Anyway, it woke <laughs> up. It woke up. Um, I woke up, and so he said, "You know, just just start a company." I was thinking, ah, "How hard can it be?" I, had a, I was a paper boy. <laughs> yeah, sure. Amazing training. Yeah, yeah. Lo and behold, I had no idea. Uh, <laughs> no idea at all. So. Long story short, you know, founded this company. It's now called uh, Mind Sciences. Uh, and our first uh, CEO was straight out of the School of Management at Yale. You know, very, very bright young woman uh, and who had a former career as a uh, documentary filmmaker. And, you know, so we, we first started this company. We're thinking we'll do this, make neurofeedback and, you know, do these headsets and help train people to learn to meditate. You know, it seemed like a good idea, you know, we had a, a business plan and all this. And it turns out that the headsets, um, so one, we were translating this from fMRI to EEG. And so we had to do that work, but it turns out that the commercial headsets were way behind. There was no way uh, we could get to market without running out of uh, the seed money. Cause this, this philanthropist, he brought, got some buddies together and, you know, helped kick us off with a, with a seed round. Mm -hmm. And so she said, you got to pivot. I said, what, what does pivot mean? <laughs> and she explained. And she said, Judd, you know, you've got these great clinical trials. Why don't you uh, make, make apps for, uh, for smoking cessation? And I said, what's an app? <laughs> you know, this is back in like 2011. You know, the mm -hmm. iPhone had just still been rolling out across the country in the United States. And, you know, Androids look like these big clunky Texas instrument calculators, you know. <laughs> you know? So there was, you know, people were just getting wise to what apps were and mostly people were using them to play video games. So she had this great idea and said, you know, I, I know how to shoot film. Let's, let's record, you know, let's cut your, uh, your manualized treatment into bite-sized pieces and deliver it to people. And I, I was thinking, you know, this is great because people don't learn to smoke in my office. Uh, so <laughs> can I, you know, can I actually bring my office to them and have it work in context um and so we started 
futzing around with what's now called, you know, in 2017, they coined this term digital therapeutic, which is basically app-based uh, trainings, you know, behavioral treatments. And, you know, FDA approved its first one in 2017. So, you know, this is five years before that was even a term we were playing around with this stuff. So fast forward, um, you know, we developed this smoking app called To Quit. It was called Craving to Quit at, at first. Um, and started doing clinical trials with it. We developed an eating program called Eat Right Now and did a clinical study showing that we got 40% reduction in craving-related eating. We even developed an anxiety program because it turns out that anxiety can be reinforced in the same way as eating. You know, we're, we're anxious and then we start worrying as a way to try to control or avoid from, uh, you know, avoid those negative feelings. And then for a moment, you know, that distraction can feel a little bit better until our brain realizes that, that anxiety and worry just feed on themselves. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes this negative spiral. Get this, we did a study with anxious physicians. Again, I was looking for one of the toughest populations to work with. Physicians are, as I could speak from personally, we're a pain in the ass to work with. Um, got a 57% reduction in clinically validated anxiety scores in three months. So we're thinking, boom, boom, boom. And we even went back and did a neuroimaging study with our smoking um, app and found that uh, we could target those specific default mode brain network regions and uh, with the with mindfulness training, uh, and get a specific reduction in cigarette smoking. So basically, at baseline, we would you know, uh, scan people's brains, show them a bunch of um, smoking images, so that they would, you know, their posterior cingulate part of the default mode network would light up like a Christmas tree. Then we'd randomize them to get the Craven Equip program, or uh, we used a National Cancer Institute's app uh, called Quit Guide as a control, and then scan them a month later and see what you know what we could predict. And we found that we got this crazy variance, we could basically predict about 58% of what was going on with three variables, baseline number of cigarettes smoking, the amount that people's uh, posterior cingulate was decreased in activity, and the number of modules they completed. So we even got a dose-dependent relationship with the mindfulness training. We got no statistical variance accounted for with the control group. So I'm thinking this is, this is the holy grail. I'm lining up theory with brain mechanism, with clinical outcomes. Um, we're, you know, we're rolling here, uh, but rolling here in terms of clinical, you know, research, you know, we've, so we've got these really nicely, um, theorized and, you know, clinically studied and studied and scientifically studied apps yet on the, uh, on the other side of the things, we had this really fledgling company that was just struggling to keep going as I was, I was doing all this research. Cause I, you know, I was an academician and so. You know, it's like, oh, hire a CEO. They'll take care of the company. <laughs> yes. I'll do the research. Uh, but that's, you know, th that's been a real rocky road. Uh, you know, we've gone through a number of, of CEOs, to be honest, um, as I was learning that it's, you know, you can't just hire somebody that looks good or that doesn't have, you know, experience that might be really brilliant. I was going to say looking good is definitely not a metric to pick a CEO on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I didn't mean a physical. I meant like on paper. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they've you know come in, come in with a, a great resume and they're like, I'm going to take this to the stars. You know, we're going to be a unicorn. And you know, as they burn through a bunch of money, I'm think you know I'm just well. Let's just say I learned a lot along the yeah. way. Uh, fortunately, our company is is doing pretty well now, uh, and but it was it was certainly it a, a steep learning curve for me. 
Mm. So that's, uh, that's it. That's in my crazy life in a nutshell. What a nutshell that is. I think digital therapeutics are amazing, especially, especially when they work and they're so scalable and they can be the problem, the, the answers to so many questions and the solutions to so many problems at that huge scale. And I think what I really like about your story and you told it beautifully is that ultimately you're an entrepreneurial guy, you've gone into academia and so many people that I know that have done that have either always had an eye on becoming an entrepreneur or the calling has just eventually found them again. And seemingly that's what's happened to you. You know, this calling's eventually found you again to commercialize this research and really try and make the impact with it, which is great. But what that means is that ultimately you've started with a problem. You're not somebody that started with technology. You're not somebody that started with a solution. You're trying to crowbar a problem around it you know you start you started with a problem it's grounded in sound academia sound academic theory and you know you had this mindfulness program that you knew worked human to human and you've digitized it and it's then gone out to a few people you've then gone back around to check again that it has actually worked because you've got this academic blood that means that you have to to check everything and and make sure it has worked which is great because it's meant that you've seemingly ended up with this product that you as a clinician you as an academic you'll have such high standards as to what you think works and what you're happy putting your name to and what you're happy, you know, giving to patients and giving to the public even that, you know, perhaps, you know, some entrepreneurs that are in the sort of move fast and break things mode might not have such rigor in terms of making sure that what they put out works every time. But it's, I just think it's a wonderful story that you've, that, that you've eventually now come, come around to building the company, making those early mistakes now, obviously, having a team that you're happy with, the company's growing. You did a Series A round as well, didn't you? For about one and a half million. Um, yes. Yeah, and yeah, and, and you've built and you've built a good business model, seemingly, um, which I'm interested in now. So, the business model itself: Are you selling this direct to consumer, so direct to patients for, for for that side of things, or have you got? I imagine you've got quite a lot of B two B calls being made and doors trying to be knocked down because I imagine this again is scalable to the likes of employers, insurers all the rest of it yeah yeah it's it's interesting our uh, our angel one of our angel uh, investors jokingly uh, used to say you know for that first five years we were on starvation mode because <laughs> yeah. you know uh and my my wife was in the peace court and there's this saying there that says you know it doesn't get fun until the money's all gone <laughs> so it, it i wouldn't say it was fun um but it certainly got interesting uh, as we were in starvation mode so i i think of this as kind of we, you know, we rose from the ashes uh, a couple of years ago when I actually brought on my good friend from college who I started the student firewood agency with. Oh, he, wow. he was smart enough to go into, uh, into startups right out of college in the mid 90s. So he got to live through the dot com bust and boom and had been doing you know, startups for 20, you know, over 20 years at the time. And he said, you know, and he had just started meditating a few, you know, a few years ago. And so he's like, you know, I'll advise your company. And he, he was amazing. He would like from four to 6 AM, he would help us out while he was wow. doing his other job. And eventually, you know, we were able to turn things around to the point where, you know, we could bring enough money in that we could actually hire him. Uh, we hired a, a 
new CEO, uh, his name is Mark Mijnick, who had done, you know, a, a, he was a serial entrepreneur himself, actually a, <laughs> a, a pediatrician who had that entrepreneurial bug and, and invented nanoparticle sunscreen. <laughs> so, wow. you know, it, but, and he, he came in, he's like, wow, this is, you know, this, I wanted to, wanted to do a company like this for a long time. And so that was a good fit. So we, you know, we really, rebooted the company a couple of years ago and like you're pointing out had been doing b2c ish as in didn't you know hadn't didn't know what we were doing didn't have the money to advertise um, but really rebooted things um, really improved our user experience and whatnot and started charging that way and that's been you know it's been a really nice organic growth over the last couple of years and as we've been getting that, we've been getting all of this incoming traffic from B2B. You know, for example, one of the largest insurers in the United States uh, called Humana came to us <laughs> and said, hey, we want to include you in our digital platform. And people have been coming to us because, you know, it's like less than 2% of apps are actually uh, backed by science, you know, a lot of them claim it, but it turns out when in their studies now published on this, that, the, you know, the claims are a little more optimistic uh, than the reality. And so we're one of the few companies that actually has super solid science, like, like you pointed out. So people are coming to us, which is, which is a great place to be in. Cause we can say, okay, yeah, you know, let's do this. Um, we've got the science. We know that these things work and, and with me as this diehard scientist, I know there's one rule that I know, which is Darwin always wins. As in, you know, selection pressure is real. And if something isn't, doesn't work, then it's going to get outcompeted. And if something does work, it's going to outcompete the others. And so not only, you know, do we have a, a selection pressure advantage with the science, but we also are continually uh, iterating to make these things even better. Yeah, that's amazing. So do you want to talk through the, the, the products that you've got then? Because you've got three, haven't you? You've got anxiety, weight loss, and smoking cessation. Do you want to just talk through kind of what a user or a patient or a customer, however you want to define it, would experience as they went through it? Sure. The general platform is the same for all three. Uh, there are core modules. And so we've taken this manualized, you know, evidence-based training and cut it into bite-sized pieces. So every day somebody does about 10 minutes of training. Uh, it's delivered through videos and animations and in the moment exercises. So people get a short snippet of, you know, here's some conceptual learning and they put it into practice in their own direct experience. And that's really critical because, you know, we learned through our own experience, not through books. You know, if, if you could learn to quit smoking through a book, you know, nobody would, nobody would smoke. <laughs> yeah. um, and so they, they do those things. Uh, and we've got, you know, 20 to 30 core modules, depending on the program. And then there are these theme weeks where people dive in more deeply. Uh, paired with that is an online community that I moderate, uh, as well as some other folks that we've trained up, you know, mindfulness and experts, so that people can get support as they go. They can keep journals um, and they can, you know, they can support each other. So we can create this crowdsourced knowledge base for newbies who are coming in and in our eating program, for example, we have like over 50,000 journal entries or close to that at this point where, you know, there's, there's tons of wisdom in there from people's direct experience and they can ask questions of me directly. And, you know, it's interesting, the number of questions has dwindled over time 
as precisely as, as hypothesized because, you know, about 80% of the questions have already been answered and they can just, and it's already there, um, you know, for, in a, in a conversational format, not just some, you know, stilted, you know, if you have this, then do this, you know, in case of fire, um, you know, it really should say don't panic, but it jumps right to break glass. <laughs> Um, so, so a lot of that has really come together and we even are able to have a once weekly online live, uh, group through zoom where anybody in the world can join in and, and I, and, one of, and Dr. Robin Bodette, who works with me, we can, you know, we can answer questions, uh, live. So that's the, that's the general format, you know, it's, it's delivered digitally through someone's phone. Um, and the, the format seems to be working pretty well. So both with the, you know, the to quit program, which is for smoking. And interestingly, people are using this um, on their own kind of off label to help with other addictions. We've had people use it for alcohol, for porn, for cocaine, things mm -hmm. like that. Um, the eating program is to help anybody who overeats or stress eats, or a lot of people describe that they have addiction to sugar. And then the anxiety programs for anybody, you know, with uh, anxiety. We're doing some clinical studies right now uh, we just finished a pilot study with a group of people with generalized anxiety disorder. So really looking at the, you know, the worst of the worst uh, in terms of, of anxiety and finding that it's, they're finding it tremendously uh, helpful as well. What I really like about that is the, from a tech perspective, again, you're problem focused, you're not solution focused. So what I mean by that is the for all intents and purposes, the tech is relatively simple. I mean, here we are on the health, you know, a health tech podcast, but ultimately the technology here is just there to solve the problem. It's you're sort of acting within yourself on, on that. You, you know, you haven't mentioned any kind of you, the usual buzzwords. You haven't mentioned artificial intelligence. You haven't mentioned machine learning. You haven't said blockchain or any of these other kind of technologies, but at the end of the day, being so problem focused, you don't need to leverage outrageous cutting edge technology in order to solve problems that very much are in existence at such a huge scale, which actually kind of makes it so much easier in, in so many ways. I mean, the ability to scale technology that isn't at the cutting edge is far easier. And what you've said there is, is quite, again, quite interesting in that you're facilitating online communities, you're using phones that are already in people's hands, you're using apps. And, you know, all these things are kind of matured now to a point where at the end of the day, for any entrepreneurs listening that are thinking about digital therapeutics, there is no need to overcomplicate this. Start with the problem and just select the technology that enables you to solve that problem. And I think that I really like about what you've done. Yeah. And I would say for any entrepreneurs out there, you know, and I'll say the word artificial intelligence. Um, <laughs> there it is. Um, you know, we will certainly we've in our clinical studies, we've been learning that we can start to personalize this stuff. And that will be, you know, a next generation piece. Uh, but the bottom line here is you got to understand your customer. And in this case, you know, I was fortunate enough where you know I'm a I'm a psychiatrist I see patients in the clinic and so I can really focus on um, understanding what their actual problems are and how we can help them find those solutions and and that's that's critical without really truly understanding them this stuff would have never evolved when you started this company is there something that you wish, I'm sure there's a few things actually, but is there something that sticks out that you wish that you'd known before starting this? <laughs> How long do we have? <laughs> uh, so I, I'll, I'll list a couple of things. 
Um, one is, you know, I wish I'd known um, how to <laughs> how to really understand um, startups. You know, I had no idea, and I just kind of jumped in head first and was fortunate enough that somebody, you know, basically thrown some money at me, uh, and, and with a you know a big pile of faith <laughs> with that. Uh, I think it would have been really helpful to know, you know, some of the nuts and bolts and basics there. You know, we reinvented a lot of wheels that didn't need to be reinvented. Um, although I'd have to say I learned a lot from the, in the process. Uh, and, you know, there's, there's something to be said about the wisdom of falling on your face many times. Um, what else had I wish I'd known? I'd, I'd, I'd wish I'd had some, some good, uh, kind of career mentorship around entrepreneurship because you know a number of times I can look back retrospectively and who knows how true this is but it seems true in retrospect where you know there are a lot of times where I was I, you know I'd be like is this should we really be doing this and and then I would just say well there's the CEO they know what they're doing and I would just kind of look the other way um, you know the and the I would avoid the discomfort rather than turning toward it and, you know, ironically, uh, mindfulness is about, you know, the only way out is through. And so I, was like, I should have been applying that myself when it came to the business. But I would just, you know, just run back to my lab because that was a place that I could really excel and, and do well. And I, I probably should have, you know, spent more time listening to my gut and, and simply, you know, asking questions because uh, that's, you know, that's what I do as a scientist. So those are a couple of things that I wish mm. I and I guess the, the last thing that I want to touch on before we finish, I've just spotted the time actually, that's gone so fast, is, so I watched your TED Talk and the bit that really stuck out for me was when you did, and you, you mentioned it in the podcast earlier, but I just wanted to touch upon it again, just to kind of highlight it, that as a beginner meditator myself, I'm sort of seeing those beginner gains. I'm sort of seeing those initial kind of wins that, that you do as a beginner, which is kind of really motivating to me at this point. But then when I looked at your TED talk and you put on the screen, the I think it was the functional MRI differences of, of the experienced med, uh, meditators. And mm-hmm. as a scientist, as a doctor, you know, I, I saw the is it the posterior cingulate cortex um yes. being so you, just, you know just so um quiet lit it's actually um, quiet in, in experienced meditators uh they're yeah they're the posterior cingulate is i think it was shown in blue there yeah in blue yeah yeah that experienced meditators don't light that brain region up and what we found is that that region is that's like basically when we get caught up in trying that gets activated. And that's the default is to just, you know, try to muscle our way through things. And this is right. where it you know, comes back to what I mentioned at the beginning. This isn't about willpower at all. It's about learning to hack our own reward-based learning system. And that's, that's what mindfulness does is it help us, helps us see how unrewarding these old behaviors are so that we naturally become disenchanted and then get that, what I think of as the BBO, the bigger, better offer of curiosity, of kindness that's always available. And that's yeah. one of the things that we see over and over with our programs is that, you know, kindness trumps self-judgment in our eating program, that curiosity trumps, you know, we've had people write out full-blown panic attacks in our anxiety program because, you know, curiosity feels better than anxiety. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, we're even, that's that, 
that brain scans basically showing uh, that, you know, willpower is dead. <laughs> yeah. uh, yet in modern day, it's going to take a while, I think, for people to catch on to that concept. I, th- I think the bit that I liked about it, though, as well, is that I'm, I'm obsessed about people finding really specific problems to solve. Mm. And I think what that showed for me is that how honed in you can be within the brain to know exactly what the problem is and to then develop mindfulness programs that as you've explained you know you know will target this and you know will produce that quietening of that of that blue region on that diagram then to go through that academia to then build a company and to build digital therapeutics that target exactly that problem i just want to essentially finish on that 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 in, in terms of defining a problem and building a solution, a technology solution, and, and doing that all surrounded by evidence and academia, it, this really does feel like gold standard for me. And it's one of the reasons that I really wanted to join the podcast. And it's one of the reasons that I really wanted to just get that message out to our audience is that, you know, being problem focused, building the technology that you need and actually just finding a genuine solution to a genuine problem at almost a molecular level using a digital therapeutic. Awesome for me. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it only took us 20 years. <laughs> and, you know, it, it just, we were using what, was, what came available at the time, you know. And so I'm, I'm glad you appreciate that as well, because uh, that's, you know, that's really what gets me up in the morning and excited to start another day. Awesome. So Judd, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has been thoroughly um, interesting and exciting for me to hear all the things that, um, that you've been up to. But the way that we end these podcasts is I just hand back over to you to kind of summarize a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your research and the company, what you're up to, and to close us out with any asks of our audience that you might have. Great. Well, so the Cliff's Notes is one, willpower is, it is, is a failed mechanism, is a dead-on arrival. Uh, and if you don't believe it, try it for yourself. Uh, try to willpower your way through any type of habit change. Uh, two, the good news is that change is possible. We now know uh, the mechanisms why, and I shouldn't say now, because they've literally been known for 2,500 years, but I would say we're now bringing those together with the modern psychology and the modern neuroscience uh, three, I think digital therapeutics are a, you know, are, are a next generation of how psychiatry and other behavioral behavior change programs are going to be delivered. And we're really lucky to be, um, you know, to be involved um, when we got started uh, with that. And we've got these, you know, three evidence-based programs uh, to quit, uh, eat right now for eating, for emotional eating and overeating, and then the unwinding anxiety program for uh, for anxiety, um, people can, and we've actually put together a, a resource website um, where people can learn more about how their brain works. We've even put together some free animations. I even did a, a seven-part um, free series for healthcare providers where they can learn about how how habits form, uh, see how you know what the evidence is around mindfulness, how they can. Uh, even bring these uh, these into their own clinics uh, for everybody from doctors to uh, health coaches. Uh, so people can go to my website, uh, drjud.com, drjud.com, get all that stuff. Um, I wrote a book if they want to read my book called The Craving Mind. Um, that that lays out a bunch of the science in a little bit more detail um, for any, any audience. Uh, and I would say you know, what I would ask of, of the audience is for people to be really curious and 
you know, um, really <laughs> understand how your own mind works because that will help you be able to um, live a happier and more productive life. Everything from less stress to um, to more you know, to, to being less distracted, um, as I have been, you know, less addicted to our own distraction and thinking and whatnot. Um, and there are, there are ways to do that. Mindfulness is, a, is one great way to do it. 